Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analyst Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Chris. Hey. hey. It is our fall preview. We've got thoughts and predictions for the last few months of 2021. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we're going to start with the market in general. Here is how the major indices have done through the first two thirds of the year SP 500 up 22%, NASDAQ up 20%, Dow Jones Industrial Average up 17%. Andy, let me start with you. I know we are long term investors, but how are you feeling about the rest of the year? I'm actually pretty positive, Chris, and and this has been a little bit of an evolution for me. I've been been a little bit more um, uh, kind of cautious over the last few months, but when I start thinking about what is happening in the markets, listening to the Federal Reserve and Chairman Powell, and just how they are kind of handling the um, monetary situation in our in, in our country, um, what we are seeing out there with some of the responses. To the, to the COVID pandemic. Obviously, we've seen a spike come up recently, but we start to see more and more of a little bit of, of, of relaxation in healthy ways. Um, I think we'll see some continued momentum on the consumer side. Momentum's a very powerful thing, Chris, and we've seen the market hit, hit uh, all-time highs more than 50 times this year. Um, historically, when you look at this kind of data after this kind of performance through August, you tend to have a, a pretty decent end to the year. Now, of course, you know it's that's all hindsight, so anything is possible. But but I think we'll we'll, we'll finish the year a little bit a little bit higher from here. Um, I'm certainly not expecting another 20% gain, but but I I think the momentum is is behind the market. And you have so many businesses operating at a very, very high level, very capable with solid leadership teams here in the U.S. and And I think I think the investors, at least for the short term, want to continue to push this market higher. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I like what Andy just said there. And we have a lot of businesses out there performing at a very high level. And, and those are businesses not only they're performing at a high level, but like he said, they have great management teams behind them. And so for me. I mean, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it, it feels like the market is 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 hot right now, right? It feels like maybe it's a little overheated. There's some questionable valuations out there, so I, I certainly understand uh, some trepidation. If investors want to kind of just take it a little bit more slowly, but one thing I've seen through the years as an investor, and in the, in the many years we've been investing, is you, you never want to take your money out of the market, right? You, you you need to remain invested, and if you feel like it's a time where valuations make you a little uncomfortable, and I certainly understand that. Maybe it is worth bringing a little money uh, into the fold there, uh, conserving a little cash, because uh, it, it is, it, to my mind, it's reasonable to, to, to think that we might have some opportunities. I think growth is going to slow a little bit. We are faced with, at some point or another, interest rates are going to go up, Chris. They have to. They simply have to. Uh, and that's going to be something that I think, you know, the market is prepared for. But I think that's going to be something that that could potentially contribute to that slowing growth and, and maybe a little bit of a, a sentiment shift there, so to speak. And, and then, of course, we've seen just a constant narrative here on inflation and costs just continuing to go up. 
so, so understandable that there's some trepidation in the near term, but but you know, as we invest, we always want to keep in the market, and, and you just got to be really picky. Look for those those opportunities for those really high performing businesses, like Andy said. Yeah, Jason, I think you'll find those opportunities. I mentioned the all time highs. I think we will see some pullbacks. Maybe we'll see a five percent pullback. Haven't seen one in a while. But to Jason's point about cost, we're seeing businesses now become so much more efficient. We see the S and P five hundred profit margins at an all time high. You see, especially on the large on the large companies, there's so much scale. There's so much ability to be able to handle the in- increasing costs. We'll probably see taxing increases at some point going forward. We will certainly see that the tapering start at some point. The chairman has been very open about that, and I think the market's expecting that. I think interest rates will kind of creep up and, and probably be above 1.5% in the 10-year from 1.3% now, um, and, and maybe go a little bit higher, but I think the market's all baking that in. and I think that, that overall, too, Chris, could be good for some of the more cyclical companies, and maybe we'll start to see a little bit more appreciation for the diversity and the breadth of the of the market. And if you look at the equal weighted ETF for the S and P five hundred this year, it's outperforming the S and P five hundred. Wow! Now you guys know the last few months of the year, there's always a lot of noise out there. Part of that is due to fun things like the holidays. Um, we've got an Apple event coming sometime this fall. The Delta variant is obviously a far less fun factor that's going to take our attention. With that in mind, Jason, what is something investing related, sort of under the radar, that you don't want investors to miss? Um, I, so I think it it may not be fully under everyone's radar, but it's something I don't think that's getting a lot of attention right now. Have you have you guys started your holiday shopping yet? Because I, I would if I were you. <laughs> Is that a I'm joke? Already, no, I'm not. I'm, have you I'm just met already me, Jason? already making a list here because we are faced with a situation. Obviously, the semiconductor shortage has has been a big uh, headline here over the last several months. But but what we are seeing is. We're seeing supply chain shortages everywhere. It is just it is it is rampant, and and so you you can as a consumer you see it in stores. As investors, we read about it and hear about it in all these investor presentations and earnings calls. Uh, it, go back to Hasbro's call here just recently, the toy company where they were talking about uh, this. They quantified the actual cost environment here. They, they're calling for ocean freight costs to be four times higher this year than last year. I mean, think about that for a second. Four times for a company that really makes its hay in getting physical goods into the hands of consumers. So uh, I, I think that you know when you when you look at those costs. I mean, Hasbro is going to be pushing through some price increases this holiday season. We're seeing restaurants pushing through price increases to be able to fund wage increases. I, I, we've talked a lot about inflation being transitory or more permanent. I, I kind of don't understand exactly how inflation can be transitory, really. It, to me, you, you start giving people pay raises, you can't take that back. When companies raise prices, they don't typically take those back. They might offer fire sales here and there. Uh, but, but to me, I think you, you couple this, this shortage, the supply chain shortage, along with the fact that costs for these companies are going up and they're pushing those costs through to the consumer in some capacity. Uh, it's just something to keep in mind. And, and yeah, I think you better start thinking about what you want this holiday season sooner rather than later because it might be tough to get some stuff. <laughs> Andy, what about you? Something under the radar you don't want people to miss? You know, I, I mentioned the taper early on, and I think the big risk there and, and just concerns about that buyer of last resort, if right now we're buying $120 billion a month in, in securities, the Fed's buying those in, in mortgage-backed securities and government securities um, bonds to, to help keep those bond prices artificially low in some cases. But there's so much money out there, Chris, and so many investors 
um, institutional investors looking to buy instruments, especially yield instruments, even at those low yields. So, um, I, I, I just think when that tapering does start, I mentioned a little bit before, I think that's baked in. I think they're going to manage that very well. Um, I don't expect the interest rates environment to start increasing Jason's um, cost side uh, aside, which certainly we're going to see cost increases. We already have. We saw Taiwan Semiconductor announce they're raising their prices, I think, by 10%. So, we will see that. I think consumers can be able to handle that. I think corporations are in much better positions now to handle that than ever before. And I think the buyers of those bond instruments are going to continue to show up, especially foreign investors. And that's going to continue to suck up the demand that the Fed is meeting right now. Maybe not completely, but enough so that we're not going to see this big spike in interest rates. All right, before we go to the break, Jason Moser, give me a business prediction. It can be about a company, an industry, a product, a CEO. One prediction. Yeah, I, so I, I, this this may sound a little bit out there, but I think Elon Musk steps down as the CEO of Tesla by the end of the year, if, if not the end of the year, maybe early into 2022. But to me, he's already bowing out of earnings calls. I think that everything that's going on right now in the space industry, I mean, I think that's really got him thinking about one thing and one thing mm-hmm. only, and that's SpaceX. So I, I feel like he is starting to think he's got Tesla in a decent enough place. He can just he can remain the techno king and serve on the board and serve as guidance when needed. Uh, but I think it's just a matter of of time now. I think he's I think he's preparing to transition out of that CEO role for Tesla. Andy, what about you? Well, I was thinking about a CEO step down. He didn't come to mind, but maybe maybe after if he gets it up to a trillion dollar valuation, maybe <laughs> maybe then he'll step aside. I think I think on the acquisition front, we've seen the, uh, the acquisition start to to, to 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 build up. We saw Zoom looking to buy five nine for about fifteen billion. I think what we will see acquisitions in is in the insurance business. We saw the first half of two thousand and twenty one with gosh more than twenty five deals worth about thirty billion according to PwC. I think insurance companies are looking for different ways to growth, especially grow their user base and their premiums in force um, in the digital space and get digital assets. So, as they continue to make investments in the digital space, it's a very fractured market. Gosh, flip on any 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 TV and you see so many different, you know, some funny insurance com- commercials out there. There are a lot of insurance companies. I think we'll see more consolidation in the insurance space. And I think probably, you know, a, a meaningful size one of uh, maybe like the 20 to $30 billion range. More of our fall preview after the break. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. It's our fall preview episode. A lot of stocks have had a good run over the past year, but whether it is due to valuation or maybe some business challenges, Andy, what is one stock that you think needs to be on a short leash? Chris, this is one that's not done so well, and I own it, and it's Pepsi. And we've talked about this before, $215 billion market cap. Sales of $75 billion. They make plenty of money. They have a nice little dividend, but the stock is up only about 8%, not including the dividend this year. The last five years has underperformed the market. Sales have grown less than 4% on an annualized basis for the last five years. Profits about the same, actually a little bit lower. The EPS has grown faster, Chris, just because they're buying back lots of stock and the free cash flow has actually been negative. So Ramon LaGuarta has been the CEO now for almost three years. He'll celebrate his three year anniversary of CEO in October. 
I really like what they're doing about the environmental and conservation approach rolling out to be a better organization, to be faster, stronger, better, positive agriculture, transitioning to 100% renewable energy by 2030. But it's just not showing up for shareholders, including myself. And I look at other places you could have that money I have in my account in Pepsi, and I've had Pepsi for a long, long time. And I'm just not seeing it. And so that one is one that I'm just kind of keeping on that little leash, Chris. Jason, what do you got on the short leash? This one is strictly valuation. So don't at me, anyone, because you know I love Bill.com. I love Bill.com. I'm an owner of those shares. But this valuation after this this past uh, earnings reaction, it's just, it even makes me a little uncomfortable. I think you need to be patient with this one. Remember, Bill.com is cloud based software that digitizes and automates back office financial operations for, for small and mid sized businesses around the world. Guidance, they're calling for 100% revenue growth here in the coming year. And and they continue to 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 benefit from growing network effects in this payments industry, which is just phenomenal business. Um, and you look at when they filed to go public, they estimated their market opportunity at around thirty billion dollars globally, about nine billion dollars domestically. They've made a couple of acquisitions here recently that have expanded that market opportunity. Uh, they recently acquired a company called Divi. Uh, which is in the it, it helps businesses control expense management. That was a two point five billion dollar acquisition. Uh, then just recently announced they're going to be acquiring Invoice to Go, a smaller acquisition, uh, but but still a, a uh, accounts receivable solution that serves over two hundred twenty five thousand small businesses. So they're doing all of the right things. They're expanding the market opportunity and executing. But the stock today is. Uh, valued at 150 times gross profit. So, I, I think that if you're interested in this business, you just need to be patient with it, because uh, it, it maybe has gotten a little bit ahead of itself. Andy, is there a stock you are more bullish on now than you were a year ago? Yeah, Chris, Workiva, uh, symbol WK, um, I recently added that to my buy list. It provides financial reporting and compliance um, for, through cloud services for, gosh, more than 4,000 clients, including 75% of the Fortune 500, a mission of Powering transparent reporting for a better world. And if you're a company that's got to report to the SEC or report data, that's a very regulated, very tricky business to get right. And Workiva specializes in it. Their, their WDesk platform is that cornerstone that provides that structure through um, through XBRRL, which is Extensible Business Reporting Language, that's becoming the standard now. They have a deep and diverse leadership team, including two of the three executives, the COO and the CFO are both female. They have a very positive culture. The CEO owns a lot of stock. The co-founder owns a lot of stock. Um, they're, ba- they're based in Ames, Iowa, so they're a tech company, but not in the heart of Silicon Valley, so I like that. A very friendly um, environment. Sales growth rate in the 20 25% range is their target. They have very high gross margins, Chris. So I look at Workiva. The valuation isn't isn't super high for a kind of cloud-based, nice growth business there. They're on that profit curve to, to be able to generate real profits along with they have the nice free cash flow yield. So um, they spend a lot of RD, a lot on their culture, and I like Workiva. Yeah, if you're a public company, maybe uh, this is not the area where you want to skimp on the budget. Uh, let's save a little money. We'll cut back on our reporting to the SEC. That'll and go it's well. Only, and Chris, it's only getting more and more complicated around the world. Jason, what about you? Well, Chris, I'm going to take you back to our uh, year in review show when we look back at 2020, uh, and, and we were talking about uh, investing discoveries of the year. And my discovery of that year was Cloudflare. Uh, I have just become more bullish on Cloudflare here in 2021 for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, to me, 
it, it just continues to serve so many very important markets. I mean, clearly security being one of the primary ones, uh, but just a tremendous cloud business, a platform there with uh, Cloudflare workers, uh, tremendous management there, and CEO Matthew Prince. He's very Bezos-esque, I think, in his thinking, which which is encouraging to me. He's very happy to take that long-term view and sink those profits right back into reinvesting in the business. Uh, the stock has had a great year so far, up 60%, hammering the market. I think when you look at the most recent, uh, recent earnings report, you see that they recently crossed the four million mark in customers, and that large customer count grew seventy percent from a year ago. I think there's plenty of gas left in the tank for this one. It's one I own, and I plan to add to this winter. Capital allocation is obviously an important skill for companies and CEOs, but let's face it, not all of them are great at it. So, with capital allocation in mind, Andy, please fill in the blank. When is blank going to spend money on blank? Happy birthday, Warren Buffett! Turned 91 years old this year, or this week. Uh, celebrated his birthday on August 30th. An incredible run, and one of the best capital allocators, I think, um, are inarguable over the last you know 50, 60 years. But the question is, what is the future of Berkshire Hathaway? They have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. They are just so diversified when it comes to their investments and their portfolio. Um, plenty of cash that they also make. And you got to ask the question, what are they going to continue to do with that? When is that next big acquisition going to come? So, I have two questions. When are they going to make a big tech acquisition, a company, a big tech company acquisition to put in their portfolio? And how about a special dividend? One-time dividend, pay us shareholders back some cash that you love, that he loves, but he does not love dividends. But as he gets older, maybe it's time. Jason, fill in the blank. And I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to take that big of a check to stroke here, but when is Chipotle going to actually spend some money and execute rolling out breakfast? I mean, this is something that has to happen, Chris. To my mind, this has been one of the most phenomenal turnarounds we've seen in our investing lives here over the past several years. Uh, they came back from the brink from those food safety concerns. Uh, new leadership there clearly is, is taking the business in a different direction, a good direction. I think it only makes sense to expand your market opportunities. Opportunity, add a few more hours to that day, open your stores a little bit early. I mean, listen, I make breakfast tacos here for dinner. Brecky burritos are the bomb. Maybe throw some chile quiles on the menu. There'd be a lot of different ways you can go with Chris. <laughs> it just to me, it seems like a no-brainer. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, we will see you later in the show. Up next, as the trial of Elizabeth Holmes gets underway, we will revisit a conversation with documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney about the rise and fall of Theranos. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Take a look at my girlfriend. She's the only one I got. Not much of a girlfriend. I never seem to get along. Take a jumbo across the water. Let me see America. See the girls in California. I'm hoping it's going to come true. But there's not a lot I can do. Welcome back to Monty Full Money. I'm Chris Hill. This week, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes began in San Jose, California. After years of being compared to people like Steve Jobs and Thomas Edison, a courtroom is probably not where Holmes expected to be at this point. After dropping out of Stanford at the age of 19, she started Theranos, a company touting a breakthrough blood testing technology. 
At its peak, Theranos reached a private market valuation of $9 billion. After the SEC charged Holmes with fraud in the spring of 2018, her company's value dropped to zero. The following year, I talked with filmmaker Alex Gibney, who had just finished his documentary about Theranos, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. What intrigued you about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes to the point where you said, that's going to be the next movie I direct? It was the psychology of deception and, and, and fraud. I mean, I, I've been interested in that for a long time. And, uh, and also, in a way, an extension of you know, something I did in Scientology, which is the prison of belief. So it's kind of getting into the psychological component of how a fraud like this can happen. That, that's what really interested me, both from the fraudster side and the investor side. And the journalist side, I should, I should add. I definitely want to get to the investing side and the journalism side, but let's stick with the, the belief side, because one of the people you interviewed in the documentary is Dan Ariely, a behavioral economist. And one of the things he talks about is how story is more important than data. Story has emotion, data does not. And the power of a good story really seems like a thread through this entire documentary. It's really behind a lot of what went on here, isn't it? I agree. I, I think, in a way, the film is all about storytelling um, and, and how much we like a good story uh, and how powerful good storytellers can be. I mean, I think in that sense, Elizabeth was in the tradition of good storytellers like Edison, you know, who constructed a narrative around himself as the main character, and Steve Jobs, who did something very, very similar, but also was able to weave magnificent presentations and dramatic stories about products. Um, and Elizabeth was, was really good at that, too. It's just she didn't have a product. It was a, that, was, that was a problem. Well, and she has a good story about herself and her reasons for starting Theranos. But yeah. I, I have to say, the device itself was a good story. I mean, about a third of the way into your movie, I found myself rooting for the device to work. And I know how this whole thing's going to end. But as a consumer of healthcare and just as a human being, you know, it's like one of the employees says in the movie, you want it to be true so badly. That's right. Tyler Schultz says that. And, and, and that, I think, is the key to, to how something like this works. You want it to be true so badly so that you invest all of this hope in something that clearly isn't working. Uh, and, and, and there's a kind of willful denial, uh, um, both on the part of Elizabeth and the part, to some extent, of people who work for her until, you know, the, 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 the divide between reality and, and fiction just became too great. But I think for Elizabeth over time, you know, she on the one hand knew how badly the machine was operating, and yet at the moments when she needed to pitch the dream, she pretended or deceived herself into believing that it was just weeks away from, from being perfected. And a key example of that would be when they're all dancing to uh, You Can't Touch This. You know, after they achieve, uh, you know, a, a kind of pitiful milestone, it was as if they had discovered penicillin or something like that. As I was watching this, I was reminded of the smartest guys in the room, the documentary you did about Enron, particularly how the companies deal with scrutiny from business media, because, you know, Ken Aletta from The New Yorker, Roger Parloff from Fortune magazine, these are smart, experienced, award-winning journalists. 
And when they start pressing her for details and data, she stonewalls them. And by the time the Wall Street Journal starts asking tough questions, they bring in the lawyers. And the intimidation tactics used by Theranos reminded me of what Enron was doing back when they were pulling off their fraud. Very similar. I mean, Enron would go after analysts. I mean, literally go after analysts and force firms to, to fire them. And then they, they 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 clamp down hard on journalists too. Sometimes with a with a a stick, and sometimes with a carrot. I mean, they did a magnificent job of bluffing people. Sort of like if you're not. Um, if you're not smart enough to understand what we're doing here, then I can't be bothered to tell you. But interestingly about Enron, and I think ultimately what happened in that meeting with the Wall Street Journal, Enron was brought down by a journalist Bethany McLean asking a very simple question. How does Enron make its money? And the Wall Street Journal, I mean, John Kerry, in a way asked the same question, like, how does the machine work? And, you know, uh, they kept hiding behind trade secrets when, in fact, there was another secret that was really at work here. Well, and speaking of Carrier, that was one of the surprising parts of the, the documentary for me. Again, even though I know the story, you know, even if Elizabeth Holmes didn't start this whole thing to defraud people right from the start, you know, part of what makes it easy to believe in the promise of this blood testing technology is the idea that you'd be crazy to lie about something involving human lives like this. And what surprised me was as things begin to unravel for Theranos, she digs in and becomes even more committed to the point where Carrie Rue says, you know, I, looking back, I underestimated her willingness to lie in public. Yes. And that, I think, testifies to, to a kind of psychological dimension of the story, which is what interested me to begin with. Because you'll recall when Bernie Madoff got caught, he basically threw up his hands and said, you got me. Um, but I think Elizabeth... Um, had such an investment in the dream that even though she knew how badly things were working, she she relentlessly relied on either outright lying or um, or or the the weirdest kind of stretching of the truth that she could boldly proclaim because it's you know it was. Um, was a refutation of what John was accusing her of. Because I think that they thought long and hard, and Enron did this too, you know, they would come up with phrases that were tortured phrases that if you really parse them, you could say we're maybe close to being accurate. Uh, you know, when, she, when she's dissembling about the whether or not they um, uh, were using proprietary technology. I mean, I think they thought that the proprietary technology was hacking into the Siemens machines so that they could, uh, you know, handle small samples. That's like, you know, taking apart a, a car and putting a new rubber band on the, on the flywheel or something. I mean, it's just crazy. Startup companies in Silicon Valley often take aim at industries that are ripe for disruption. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, but I'm curious if you think that this entire episode with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes has in any way given pause to how investors and VCs invest. Do you think 
it's going to make them be a little bit more cautious? Or is there just too much money involved at this point? Well, I guess it depends at which point. I mean, there's an awful lot, as you say, there's an awful lot of money in Silicon Valley. So, what's a million here or a million there? You know, if you're betting on a 50 to one shot, you know, that million dollars, you, you bet on 10 of those and one of them comes in, your bet is more than covered. But later on, you know, when, when the money gets serious, like Rupert Burnock invested $125 million, you'd hope that investors would um, kick the tires. So you'd hope that companies like Walgreens would demand to look inside the box, but they didn't, which teaches you something kind of scary about human nature. And I think they won't get it right until we understand how flawed we all are and how susceptible we are, as you say, to Dan Ariely's notion that you know stories prey on emotions. You've done a lot of investigating in the area of fraud. I mean, when I look through your IMDb page, it shows up both in your work as a director and as a producer. I'm curious if you have now gotten to the point where you've seen certain traits or commonalities among individuals that people can use to pinpoint as early warning signs. Like, is there something going on in the world of business right now that you see and you think, you know what? It really wouldn't shock me if that company or that person was committing fraud on some level. It's usually the kind of messianic, almost religious sermonizing that takes place from CEOs. Whenever I see that, I think, you know, maybe, or maybe, you know, they're they're covering up for something really big that they that the more you see somebody who promises outlandish things the more you suspect that underneath that might be a fraud just the way you see with politicians for example in a darker realm you know politicians who rail against homosexuality or or ministers who rail against homosexuality you know uh, in, in extreme ways, uh, are likely to be the ones who are caught in a bathroom stall with somebody of their own sex, right? Um, so, it's an extreme version of part of our psychological makeup. Did anything surprise you when you were making this documentary? What surprised me really was how effective she was, how many people fell for it, and and how often when it came to a tipping point, all Elizabeth had to do was to talk to them and people would be convinced. Tyler Schultz himself talks about it. Like he knew how bad things were in the lab, what he called the tiled world. And then he would go up to the carpeted world and have a conversation with Elizabeth and she would just convince him. And then she had convinced his grandfather to basically doubt his own grandson. Um, that's, um, you know, so you realize the power of uh, of storytelling, um, how effective it can be despite all the evidence. How do you think they were able to get Walgreens as a customer? I mean, there are various points in this story where if you didn't know anything about it, you might think to yourself, okay, well, now she's going to be discovered. And I think one of those points is when an established business like Walgreens comes to the table. Well, I think that Walgreens, you know, panicked 
and panicked in this sense that they, they, they desperately wanted to be part of some new tech, right? That, that they felt they were an old-fashioned company and they needed some glitter, and they were going to be left behind if their competitors were embracing some kind of new tech, and they weren't. And so Theranos comes along, and that seems to fit the bill for something exciting, some dazzling new um, 21st century solution to old problems that they can tout as being very hip and modern. Uh, so I think they were susceptible to that pitch. But then you realize that the top executives of the company were conned by Elizabeth in the most fundamental way. I mean, they had a, an investigator who was just dying to rip apart the Theranos Edison machine and look inside it uh, and to see what was going on. But Elizabeth convinced the executives not to let him. How does that work, right? So you, you're right. And, 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 but I, I think also Elizabeth was very clever about gathering around her step by step people who would testify to her establishment credentials, you know, that, and, and, and you realize you rely on others. And by the way, this happens in journalism all the time. You know, you rely on past clips as if those clips are all true. And they may be or they may not be. Um, well, you know, uh, George Schultz, you know, Henry Kissinger probably relied on George Schultz. And then Jim Mattis probably relied on George Schultz and Henry Kissinger. And then you have the snowball and investors, oh, Larry Ellison put some money in. Um, and, uh, you know, once Fortune, and I think that's why Roger Parloff felt so bad, once Fortune put Elizabeth on their cover, it was like, well, Fortune did it. We're, it's good to go. This is, a, this is fantastic. It's got to be real. Not to give away the ending of your movie, but Elizabeth Holmes has been indicted on multiple counts of wire fraud. Uh, there's no trial date set at the moment, but when this trial eventually happens, she's going to be facing up to 20 years in jail. She is a young woman. Do you think Elizabeth Holmes has a second act? Uh, I think that line about from Fitzgerald, there are no second acts in American life, is maybe the stupidest thing he ever said. <laughs> so I, I think she probably does have a second act, but um, how that second act manifests itself, we'll see. She still has defenders, people who feel that she's the maligned entrepreneur. Tim Draper famously came out for her the other day and said the criticism of Elizabeth, of Elizabeth is, is akin to, you know, um, an assault on humanity or something like that. Uh, you, you could look it up. So yeah, I do. I think she does have a second act, but it remains to be seen whether that second act will be before or after prison. While you're waiting for the outcome of the trial, check out Gibney's documentary. The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, is currently streaming on HBO Max. Up next, Andy Cross and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Time to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Andy Cross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, DigitalOcean, symbol D-O-C-N, a $7 billion company, provides cloud architecture that allows developers and startups and small, medium-sized businesses to build and deploy software in the cloud in a really simple and cost-effective way, uh, much easier and much more scalable for small companies than something like maybe Amazon Web Services. doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. They're expanding their market and their, and their, and their client base. They have more than 600,000 clients around the world. They operate what they call these little droplet vi- virtual servers that can be spun up very quickly for developers. Um, so it's a very simple, transparent cost structure. Um, they have more than $400 million in annual recurring revenue. That's up 35% in the last quarter. Revenue per user is up 25%. They have a very nice dollar-based retention rate of 113%. The CEO was a former C chief operating officer at SendGrid before it was acquired by Twilio. So I like DigitalOcean. Uh, has lots of cash on the balance sheet. It's not horribly expensive at 17 times price of sales, Dan. So DigitalOcean, D-O-C-N. Dan, question about DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean sounds like the failed follow-up album to a one-hit wonder <laughs> band. Or can they can they possibly compete with Amazon Web Services? Yeah, they are. They are right now. I thought it sounds like a good band name, Dan. I like DigitalOcean as the actual band name. But yes, they can compete. They are competing um, ultimately as they go and grow in their market space and they try to add more and more of those services. It does get more competitive, so something to watch. But DigitalOcean, the band or the company, interesting to put on your radar list. Jason Moser, we've got about a minute left. What are you looking at? Yeah, yeah. Taking a look at PayPal, ticker PYPL. Uh, the Super app is code complete and starting to roll out. I think they maybe recognized some potential kryptonite in that they didn't have a brokerage offering. offering Chris. Mm. So, we saw the headline this week that they are exploring uh, a stock trading platform for U.S. customers. They've actually hired uh, an industry vet to start investigating the opportunities there. Uh, and I think, unlike something like a Robinhood, you know, the nice thing is PayPal already has a real and sustainable business that's not dependent on you know, that whole order flow uh, issues. So, this would really be nothing more than a complementary addition to an already very good business. Dan, question about PayPal? What am I going to ask you about PayPal? PayPal's a juggernaut. PayPal's like the, the biggest war on cash company on the planet. Like, What, what am I going to ask? Are, are they doing okay? <laughs> I love you, Dan. <laughs> I don't think I need to ask what you're going to add to your watch list. You know what, Chris? I don't think you do either. <laughs> Andy Cross, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.